Hey everyone, welcome to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course, I'm joined every Monday by Digital Book World's own Mr. Jeremy Greenfield. Jeremy, how are things in New York? Uh, wintry. Yeah. Is it cold? Very cold out. Very cold. Very gray. Um, but I grew up in Buffalo, New York, so I'm used to it. Ah. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Vancouver, and our winters are more or less rain every single day for about five months straight. So it's not exactly Wonderful. it's not exactly cold, but sometimes you wish it was cold and less rainy. Right, right. A little bit colder, and you've got some snow. Yeah, exactly. And we rarely get snow, maybe like once a year, and it only lasts for like two days before the rain washes it all away. <laughs> So let's get right into it. There is a major story that's uh, been developing and it has to do with comic books being sold in bookstores. So whether you buy your comics or you've seen them at Barnes Noble, Book a Mil- Books a Million, uh, Chapters Indigo and companies like that, you would know that when you walk into the magazine section, usually they sell comic books. So you'll find DC uh, Archie, Marvel Comics, and, and a myriad of graphic novels. Marvel has actually suspended selling single-issue comic books in at least the U.S. So Barnes Noble, Books a Million, and a number of other stores will no longer be selling single issues. And this is a mandate that actually came from Marvel themselves. And Barnes Noble actually called me and told me a little bit about uh, what's going on. So basically, Marvel has said that they're no longer selling single-issue comic books to any bookstores in the U.S. So if you want to buy Wolverine 61 or Deadpool you know, 101 or anything like that, you'll be unable to do it. The only comics from Marvel that you'll be able to actually buy at these bookstores are graphics novels. And this is because that they are actually sourced from Hachette. So these are the trade paperback editions. Marvel's not... You've gotten back to me about, you know, what are the semantics? What are the reasons why? But, you know, both companies, uh, Books a Million and Barnes Noble, did confirm to me independently that, yes, this is the case. They're not able to order it from Marvel. And this isn't coming from uh, a source of unwillingness on Barnes Noble's part saying, you know, we don't want to carry it anymore. It's basically Marvel saying we're not, these comics are not able to be actually ordered uh, anymore. So, We'll see how this goes. Jeremy, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I want to preface what I want to say by saying that I don't think print is dead, and I don't think print is going to be dead anytime soon, um, you know, if ever. But the most, the thing that comes to mind immediately when, when taking this story into account is another nail in the coffin of print. Uh, this is, you know, we don't know why uh, Marvel has decided to do this, um, or where, whether it was a unilateral move or not. Um, but my my best guess is that uh, the single-issue uh, distribution into bookstores business was not a profitable one for Marvel in one way or another. Um, that or Marvel is trying to distribute more directly uh, to readers. But I think it's more likely that it's about print and about the economics of print uh, in an ever-increasingly digital world. 
you know, I agree. I used to buy comics all the time from my local comic shop. And then about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, I started just buying everything on my iPad just because, you know, as soon as 12 midnight hit, I think on every Wednesday or Thursday, whatever new comic day is, I don't even know. And I've been buying comics for years. Anyways, um, you know, I, I could just buy everything on my iPad, carry it with me. And this way I'm not, I don't have an overflowing bookshelf of like comic books or anything like that. So, you know, and, and I'm not exactly a hardcore comic reader, but there's a few kind of cool series that I do follow. And I, I agree. I think it's the economics. You look at, say, your local supermarket that had like a comic stand or you have your bookstore that has a comic stand. I just don't think that people are buying comics anymore from those types of environments. If they're buying them at all in a retail environment, I really do think that they're buying them from like a dedicated comic store where, you know, they have an extensive back issue. They have a knowledgeable staff that's all geeks that really know comics. So you could go and actually talk to them about things. And I just don't think that... Like you said, comics are profitable. Like I think it comes down to it that probably bookstores were returning more comics than they were actually selling on a weekly or monthly basis when they do, you know, the magazine returns that didn't sell or the book returns directly to the publishers. And I think probably Marvel just said enough is enough, which is kind of odd because I don't I can't remember another time, Jeremy, where Marvel as a franchise was more visible or profitable than it is now. I mean, look how many Marvel movies have come out this year, like a new Thor, a new Iron Man. Uh, next year's a new Captain America, you know, a new Fantastic Four, a new Spider-Man movie. I mean, there's a lot of spotlight on Marvel right now. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you think, though, you know, going back to my days covering a magazine, that the argument around, um, you know, why magazine publishers may still want to uh, go forward with their print magazines as, as they're even less profitable. Uh, the same could be said of, of books. Um, so that a lot of media companies now are looking at their operations more holistically and thinking to themselves, well, our print magazine uh, as an option for our advertisers supports our website as an option for advertisers, and all of these things work together to promote all the other things that we're doing. Um, so you know, maybe Mar I'm, I'm guessing Marvel does look at its business that way. Uh, that you know, it's its uh, movie business and its um, you know, print business and, and all the other things, digital business are all inter in, intertwined in some way. Um, and so the, the decision to end distribution for print in this one area it probably wasn't made in a vacuum. It probably wasn't just about you know, the, the economics of that one decision, but it was probably made in, in consideration with all the other things Marvel does. I think I totally agree. So. We were, we're, you know, we're we're talking now about like you know publishers and 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 their mentalities behind it. You actually uh, have a piece on a digital book world on ebook publishers of 2013 and who's had the most success, who hasn't really had that much success. Um, what do you know? Well, uh, this is a, a pretty exciting, um, you know piece for us. We've taken our bestseller list from the entire year and we've looked at which publishers have appeared on it the most and um, you know, ranked them. So if, no surprises, Penguin Random House just completely dominated. Um, if you look at what Penguin Random House did in the second half and you add the bestsellers, the Random House bestsellers and the Penguin bestsellers from the, the first half, uh, far and away the most successful publisher at generating ebook bestsellers. 
Um, however, if you just if you take those as three separate entities, so Penguin Random House and then Random House and Penguin from the first half of the year before the merger was closed, uh, Hachette actually is the top ebook publisher. So it goes from the top. Hachette had 258 appearances on the bestseller list. Uh, Penguin Random House had 230. Random House had 146. Penguin 102. And then number five is self-published authors had 102. I'm sorry, 99 appearances on the bestseller list, including four number ones out of the 48 weeks that we ran it this year. Um, after that, it's HarperCollins with 91 ebook bestsellers, Simon & Schuster with 72, Macmillan with 68, Amazon at number 9 with 46 bestsellers, Scholastic had 27, uh, Harlequin had 21 ebook bestsellers, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt 8, um, and then just going down the list, Hyperion uh, with 4, Soho Press 3, Workman also had 3, uh, Abrams had 2, and then uh, Fido Publishing had two, uh, Gossamer Publishing had two, Kensington Books had two, Open Road Media had two, and then all the following had one ebook bestseller. Bellbridge Books, Covenant Communications, Entangled, Orly Press, Sourcebooks, Spencer Hill Press, and uh, The Indie Voice, which is a, a new publisher set up by a consortium of, of indie authors. Um, so it's a pretty diverse list, and I think you know the, the big news stories are that Penguin Random House just absolutely dominated number one, and that number two, um, the self-published authors had a tremendous amount of success. I mean, no single publisher outside of Hachette or Penguin Random House uh, had more ebook bestsellers than the combined self-published authors. So the question is, is do you think that self-publishing will grow? You know, if you were to fast forward to your end of the year list in 2014, do you think that self-publishing could actually rise further in the charts than it is now? I think that there's a good chance that it does, um, but I think it's a it's that's a lot of bestsellers to have. I mean, that's almost ten percent of the entire list. Yeah, is self-published authors. I mean, the, these self-published authors sold have more number one bestsellers than Harper Collins, Macmillan, or Simon and Schuster or Amazon. These are these are not number one bestsellers, bestsellers in general. Yeah. Um, but I believe self-published authors did have more number one bestsellers than uh, than those publishers, so I'd have to double check that. Um, but we also did a ranking of all the number one bestsellers, so that's that's another thing that we can uh, discuss. But yeah, I mean, more than Macmillan, Simon and Schuster, Harper Collins, Scholastic, Harlequin, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, many, many, many publishers. Okay, so let's look at some of the books that did the most this year in terms of sales, in terms of like overall visibility. Uh, I'm looking at the list here and no surprise that Nicholas Sparks had the, the number one slot with Safe Haven. Uh, yeah, I mean that was in the beginning of the year just uh, a super successful uh, ebook because of the movie that came out. Um, obviously the price was fairly low, it was a backlist title um, and that probably helped drive a lot of sales. Uh, and, and the way that this, this article works is we put together all of our number one bestsellers into a big list. Uh, we listed the author, the publisher, and then the lowest price that it was available while it was a number one bestseller. Um, uh, so yeah, Safe Haven was at the top of our list for eight weeks this year. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Um, next was Inferno by Dan Brown was another huge, huge seller this year at uh, the top of our list for uh, $12.99 for uh, seven weeks. And it was the um, most expensive book, I think, in, in, your, in your top ten at least. It was the most expensive book in the top ten. And there was one other one, A Lover at Last, a novel of the Black Dagger Brotherhood uh, by J.R. Ward uh, from Penguin Random House was 
uh, atop our list for one week at $14.99. Uh, and I think probably because of the way ebook discounting is working right now, this is the last time we'll see uh, a number one uh, anywhere near that kind of price. And, and I think it's mostly because um, you know the, the retailers are discounting fairly heavily on these popular books these days. Yeah. I mean, I don't really see much surprises, like at least if we look at the top five, you know, J.K. Rowling, John Grisham, Down Brown, Nicholas Sparks, and I'm not too familiar with number three. Uh, Leanne Moriarty. I'm actually not too familiar with her work either, but uh, it's a Penguin Random House uh, book, and it was um, atop our list for six, six long weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of the usual suspects, like, on this list, you know, Lee Child, J.R. Ward, Sylvia Day, you know, uh, Veronica Roth, you know, her movies, I, I, she, I, I guess she did, like, the, the one big movie that came out for her franchise, but she's been writing sort of these paranormal books for a lot of years, uh, David Baccelli, you know, there's a, a lot of things here, but what's surprising me is that the books are not that expensive, you know. It, no, they're very cheap. Yeah, I mean, there's very few that are like above nine ninety nine, which used to be under the agency pricing model, sort of the price that people would pay for new releases. Now it's all like six ninety nine, five seventy nine, you know, ninety. Well, look cents. at uh, Wait for You uh, was atop our list for two weeks, and it was ninety nine cents. Yeah. It's very interesting. I would be very interested to kind of find out the correlation between being number one in the bestseller list. Does that have anything to do with the price of the book? I think mostly there was no correlation. We saw a couple of instances where a book uh, was dropped in price and then shot up the list. Uh, and that happens pretty regularly, and some of those books did reach number one. But in general, I think, you know, a number one, to, what, 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 creates a number one bestseller is a, is a very strange and interesting and unknowable mixture of things, that yeah. certainly if you're in the publishing industry. Um, so I don't think that there is a direct correlation, you know, I will lower the price, it will become number one. Um, but for books that are already popular, uh, price drops have definitely, uh, for the most part, correlated with increases in sales rank. All right. So we've all heard about... Fitbit, smartwatches, Google Glasses, wearable tech, people are talking more and more about it. You would be hard-pressed to go a week without reading a headline in a New York Times, your local newspaper, a magazine like Wired, or you know any type of online tech publication. Everybody's talking about wearable tech, and there's a lot of people that are entering the field for the first time, such as Arcos, and there's people like Samsung that are going to be announcing uh, a follow-up to their Galaxy Gear smartwatch at CES at the beginning of January. This, the entire wearable tech industry has actually increased by over 500% in the first half of 2013. We should have some later statistics probably around the end of January, February on the second half of 2013. We've seen a lot of big things happen. Uh, 200 million bands of Fitbit were shipped out in the first half of 2013, and a lot of things were... You know, the Galaxy Gear from Samsung sold 800,000 units in the first two months of their sale. Um, we've really seen the evolutionary growth 
of this segment it, it's just been explosive. Uh, Qualcomm is heavily invested in it with their uh, smartwatch technology. There's a lot of players that are entering this space, uh, both large and small companies, trying to take advantage of heart, heart rate monitors, uh, different types of glasses, different types of watches. There's been ever-increasing rumors that Apple is going to be entering this space as they have purchased a few companies that specialize in bendable glass. And so whether that is evident in a new iPhone or whether they're going to be releasing a smartwatch or maybe with their new television, uh, rumored television set remains to be seen. Jeremy, you live in New York. You probably see people, you know, with, with Gadgets and doodads all the time. Have you noticed an increase uh, in wearable tech at all? Um, you know, in my experience, and I'm I'm going to do something that I, I I probably shouldn't do because I I'm not that cool of a person. But in my experience, wearable tech outside of headphones, um, you know, things that have very specific purposes, uh, are just it's just not cool um, and not super long lasting. I, I think Bluetooth. Uh, Bluetooth earbud things uh, kind of faded away after being initially kind of popular. Uh, you know, the cool kids never really caught on. And I actually think that this is what's going to happen with a lot of wearable tech. I mean, I think about um, Google Glass. It's just, uh, you know, there are some interesting advantages if you read about it, but it just strikes me as not that cool. Whereas the, the technology that does do all of the stuff that a lot of wearable tech does that you can carry in your pocket uh, has obviously become extremely popular and, and taken off. So I have seen, um, I haven't seen any smartwatches around. I see Google Glass around every so often, but usually because of you know you go to an industry event and, and there are people there that are from Google or, or are really well connected because obviously it's not a super popular item at this point. Um, so my thinking on this is that you know the smartwatch thing actually. Uh, won't really take off. Although the one thing that intrigues me about it is, um, you know, there are situations like, say, if you're skiing um, or or doing other things where you don't want to have a cell phone on you, you can't grab it out of your pocket that easily, where a smartwatch would be useful. But I'm not sure it's really going to take off. Just a guess. I think in its current form, I think they're selling a lot because it's more or less like a new novelty. But there's a lot of drawbacks, and I've been talking to a lot of people involved in the space, and they're basically saying, you know, um, battery life is really weak. You know, at this point, there's really no easy way to charge it. It doesn't really do wireless charging like you can do with, you know, smartphones and some tablets. And I just think that on a component level, you know, you look at um, screen technology, and then you look at all everything underneath the hood. So, like the RAM, you know, the circuit board, and things like that. None of it was really manufactured with the intent of it being a, on a watch. So, it wasn't designed initially to be bendable or to be comfortable on your wrist. It, it's just basically people buying component by component, getting things cheaply enough so you can mass market it and still make money. But from like a design point of view, when I've talked to companies like Qualcomm or LG and Samsung and things like that, yeah, it's, it's basically on a component level from batteries to all this stuff. It wasn't really designed to be on a watch or to be on a medallion and things like that. And I think that those are the things that are needed for the growth of the segment is 
people to invest a copious amount of money in research and development and then start actually making things that are bendable, that are comfortable, that are light, that have a long battery life, really good resolution. Um, a lot of smartwatches right now, they're very reminiscent of like the 80s Timex digital watches, if you mm -hmm. remember those. Mm -hmm. Just very pixelated, doesn't really do a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think the industry has a long way to go, but I think uh, a lot of people are heavily invested in the space. But <clears throat> the wearable tech industry right now is very, very reminiscent of like when e-readers started to get really popular or tablets started to get really popular. You had like all these companies come out of the woodwork and just try to flood the market with, you know, subpar products in order to just to take advantage of all the buzz and i think that that's what companies like arcos and stuff are doing at, at ces this year where they're i think they have a few different watches and things like that and they tried to do the same thing in the tablet space um where when right when the ipad first came out and 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 those early android tablets came out and you know just the tablet buzz was just insane like everyone was writing about the future is mobile and then all these like shitty little companies just came out of the woodwork and was like you know let's just try to capitalize on all the buzz we'll just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks and you know 60% of those companies are either totally out of the space or out of business yeah I mean I, I can <clears throat> going back to my bad habit of prognostication here I, I mean I can envision a future in which you know people are wearing their technology and um, it's all very jazzy and, and shiny and bright. <laughs> um, but I also can envision a future in which, you know, as cool as some of this stuff seems, the economics don't work out. Cell phones are already really, really good at doing most of it. Um, you know, clearly the Fitbit and things like the Fitbit have really, really taken off. Uh, and I think that might have to do with a subculture and this new sort of like biometrics um, I'm sorry, not not bio. Uh, it's not biometrics, but the sort of the new science of sort of measuring everything about your body and everything uh, that works in your body. Um, that that might be more about a subculture, but you know uh, they don't pay me to make predictions. That's just my gut. Okay, one of the last things I want to talk about is a story that kind of broke probably in the last three or four days. Uh, Hugh Howie weighed in on it. A number of message boards just really exploded. What do you think, Jeremy, about Amazon lowering its indie author slash self-publishing commission platform from 70% to 35%? So, you know, I don't see why Amazon would do anything like that anytime soon. I mean, I could see Amazon shaving off a few percentage points. Uh, but I don't see Amazon you know, having it, and I'm not sure why those rumors are floating around. Um, but Amazon has done a lot to uh, ingratiate itself with the author community. Um, and I think Amazon also sort of is a believer in cutting out you know, the middleman when it comes to supplying things. And that's one of the, I think, reasons philosophically Amazon has gone after publisher margins. Um, you know, that said, I don't think Amazon views authors as middlemen. I think uh, Amazon views authors as sort of the, the, pr the, the producers of the raw material that it sells. And so I, I think Amazon would be happy to uh, allow its authors to have, you know, pretty big margins. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, it's a very flat marketplace for these indie authors and these indie books. And I would predict that indie authors would retaliate uh, pretty strongly if they felt like they were they were being threatened and their margins were being threatened. That they would um, 
be less happy to work with Amazon and, and, and work with Amazon in a less uh, positive way. Um, so I don't know where these rumors are coming from. I have not spoken to anyone at Amazon about this, um, but it would surprise me if Amazon made a move like this, especially when you know the competition in the marketplace, all of its competitors have the same, basically the same margins for authors. Um, so I just don't see Amazon uh, doing anything like that, especially a move that drastic. Well, here's my take on it. Uh, traditional publisher deals usually do 12%. So if you belong to Shet, Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, the, usually their commission structure on book sales is around 12%. It could fluctuate depending on who you are, but that's that's about the industry standard, or so I uh, so I hear. Is that is does that basically fall in line with what you know? Uh, more or less, yeah. Okay, so. When Amazon entered India and a few other sort of the, of those Asian Pacific markets uh, earlier in the year, they didn't offer indie authors 70%. They offered them 30% out of the gate. So, so let's look at Amazon India. When they launched Kindle Direct Publishing there, they did it right out of the gates at 30%. No one batted an eyelash it didn't garner any headlines at all because when they opened the market, that's what they offered. Now, mm -hmm. I think that Amazon has pro probably looked at, you know, some of these markets where they've insured at 30% and said, hey, there's no negative backlash. People are continuing to publish with us instead of publishing maybe with Kobo and their writing life platform or maybe Smashwords and their platform. And I think that they may be seriously considering it. Look at... Look, just look at the current state of self-publishing. Besides Amazon, who else will really give you a lot of eyes on your book or a lot of traction? I see, but Amazon knows that 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 kind of creating that kind of marketplace invites competition. And Amazon, one of the reasons it's been so successful is that its margins are so thin that it. Uh, really discourages competitors. So I think that you know, Kobo is in a lot of markets, Apple's in a lot of these markets. Um, that if Amazon were to roll that out across large markets, um, that these competitors would say, "Hey, why are you doing business with Amazon? Come to Kobo, do Kobo Direct, be only Kobo, and we'll give you 60%." Um, and I, I think that that's a that's a way of doing business that Amazon uh, is wary of. Um, so I and, and I would also. You know, there's a difference between opening up a new marketplace with different terms and changing the terms of a very large and established marketplace. Yeah. Well, again, this has just been something that's exploded probably, you know, around like the 25th to about the 27th. And a lot of people were talking about, you know, prospectively Amazon doing this just because Amazon basically controls uh, the self-publishing you know, uh, they make the most sales, they make the most money in terms of the distribution as being an online bookseller. And a lot of people were basically saying, you know, in a, in, you know, you look fast forward maybe a few years from now, Amazon likely is going to be the last person standing. And at that point, they think they could decrease their indie author revenue because there's no one else that can, there's no one else that can compete with them anymore. So, 
you could you know invite competition, but it's going to take a long time for them to gain any traction. And you have to look at their market penetration and things like that. Uh, Kindle products ridiculously cheap to buy. You know tablets, e-readers, and they have an app on every single major platform. They're very ex accessible and they're very successful. And I, I do think it's only a matter of time before they lower their commission structure uh, just to fall in line with more of an industry type standard. But I guess we're not, we don't have, I don't have a crystal ball, you know, I'm not a palm reader. I can't predict the future, but I could probably say that it's only a matter of time before they do lower it. Before we wrap up the show today, Mr. Greenfield, do you have any other stories or anything else you want to talk about? No, I just uh, want to wish everyone a happy new year. I'm sure I'll see many of your listeners at Digital Book World uh, in a couple of weeks. We're very excited for that. And um, uh, everyone be safe and have fun tomorrow night. I concur. Everyone have a very happy new year. And we shall talk to you again a week from now. But until then, y'all take care. Bye.